Welcome to the very first episode of Talking APAC, a podcast series brought to you by the Australian Psychology Accreditation Council, or APAC for short. APAC acknowledges the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional caretakers of the land and we pay our respects to Elders past and present. My name is David Glanz and I'm recording this podcast on the land of the Wurundjeri people, one of the five Kulin nations. Now some of you listening will know APAC very well, but this might be the first time that others of you have engaged with us. So what does APAC do? Put simply, our task is to ensure that students studying psychology at 41 universities and private providers get top quality education an education that enables them to serve the community safely and effectively once they qualify to practice. And that's why APAC assessors, all of them senior qualified psychologists and supported by a team of APAC staff, visit each higher education provider for an accreditation assessment every five years. Now over upcoming episodes, we'll unbundle and demystify that process and talk to a range of people involved in accreditation. But today, let's start by talking about why assessments matter and how higher education providers can get ready to make it a painless process. To do that, I'm joined by Nee Robinson, who is APAC's accreditation manager and the veteran of many accreditation assessments. Welcome, Nee. Hello, David. Good to talk to you. So what's the aim of an assessment? What is your team looking for, and is it as scary as it sounds? Thanks, David. The underlying philosophy of program accreditation is to ensure quality of psychology education and ensure that graduates are competent to practice. APAC works to protect the safety of the public by ensuring graduates meet the high standards set by the profession. Through the accreditation process, Programs are assessed against the standards with the aim of helping improve the quality of psychology education in Australia, both from a quality assurance and a quality improvement standpoint. And the process is definitely not as daunting as it sounds. The APAC team takes a collaborative approach and is here to provide advice and guidance throughout the process. We invite education providers to an information session well before the site visit so they know what to expect and the team touches base at different points throughout the process along the way. Education providers are also welcome to reach out via email or phone if they have any questions at all. So it's definitely not an adversarial process. Providers aren't on trial. This is really helping them make sure that they're helping their students. Absolutely. It's focused on the quality of the programs. For most of the past two years, there's been a little thing called a pandemic. You may have heard about it. Have you managed to make the assessment visits work online? Because obviously that's quite different from being able to meet people face to face. How's APAC gone around that? Yes, yes. The COVID pandemic and the ongoing uncertainty with lockdowns and travel restrictions has really thrown a spanner in the works. Like every other organisation, APAC has had to quickly flex and adapt. We pivoted to a virtual site visit process 
and undertook our first virtual visit last year in May with all our subsequent 2020 and 2021 reviews undertaken in this manner. There are two key elements of the process that were modified to enable and ensure robust assessment review could continue. The first was a shift in timing. So more information is now reviewed ahead of the virtual visit, including a pre-recorded tour of the clinic, test library facilities, as well as a review of a range of student assessment samples, along with the submission documentation. The change in this part of the process means that the assessment team has the opportunity to view these crucial elements as part of the submission before the visit and to avoid any delays caused by SNAP lockdowns. Now, the second change is in the site visit process itself. All interview sessions are conducted via Zoom and we have built into the schedule a 15-minute debrief after each interview session to allow the assessment team adequate time during the visit for confidential team discussions and reflection. These tweaks in the process have enabled APAC to continue with robust and effective assessment reviews. I'm just wondering your experience of that has been because, look, we all miss face-to-face. You and I are recording this from our separate working-from-home home offices. It would be much nicer if we were doing it across the table in the APAC office, but we can't do that, and we lose that interaction um, we lose some of the subtleties that just we get when we talk to people in person Um, have you been surprised have there been any real positives come out of working online that you didn't expect overall we've had great feedback from both our um, assessors and our education providers who have been through the virtual process we have heard that it has been effective Okay, so take me through the process. How does a provider know they're going to be assessed and how much time do they get to prepare? So the process to initially accredit a program is different to the re-accreditation process. Education providers seeking accreditation for a newly proposed program must first submit a notice of intent to APAC. Once a notice of intent is accepted, the provider is asked Um, to submit a written submission. So this is the self-assessment explaining how the program seeking accreditation meets the standards. An APAC submission template is available to guide education providers in structuring its submission documentation and responding to each criterion. It's really important to note that there is a distinction in the APAC rules for accreditation, outlining the requirement for level one and level two programs to gain accreditation within 12 months of commencement of the program, whereas a level three and above program is required to gain accreditation prior to the commencement of the program. Additionally, an assessment review can take up to 12 months to complete from the time the submission documentation is provided. So if an education provider is thinking of launching a program, I do recommend that they contact the APAC office to discuss their intent to introduce a new program, regardless of which level of study it may be, and to submit that notice of intent early in the planning phase 
to initiate the assessment process and to avoid any delays with accreditation. So in the case of uh, re-accreditation, the process begins when APAC contacts the provider around 12 to 18 months before its suite of programs accreditation status is due to expire. The process kicks off with an information session to ensure there is a shared understanding of the process, requirements, expectations and the key milestones for any providers who are in the 2023 cycle tuning in today we will reach out early in the new year to seek your availability for an information session to be delivered in the first quarter of 2022. Now some people will have gone through this process four or five years ago things have actually changed in that time the standards uh, have shifted about three years ago and my understanding is it's now less of a an intensive checklist and more of a discussion about how standards can be met and demonstrated through a process of student outcomes can you take me through that for anybody who's not really noticed that we've changed the way we operate yes absolutely david um the standards the 2019 standards are framed with a focus on outcomes. Um, unlike the previous set of standards, they are less prescriptive um, and there is more of an emphasis on outcomes. So this means uh, greater flexibility is given to the provider on how they structure their programs and what evidence uh, to provide. So the onus is on the provider to demonstrate what they do achieves the required outcomes and is adequate to meet the standards. Um, in particular, that students safely and ethically develop the required competencies by the end of the program. Have you found that a difficult culture shift? What would you advise people is the best way to talk about demonstrating uh, outcomes? What we always advise a provider is really focus on the um, the outcomes, and really it's, it's up to them to demonstrate um, what they do does achieve and meet the standards. Okay, so this sounds like a little bit of a culture shift, but it's one which is much more about what education providers do rather than uh, a list of facilities or whatever that they have to provide. Yeah, it is less prescriptive, uh, rather yeah, less of a checklisty sort of thing, just regarding the previous set of standards and how it was more um, a checklist. You know, these are the inputs, and then you'd meet accreditation. Whereas now, the provider is given that freedom to innovate. All right. Well, that sounds both exciting and yeah, a little a little bit nerve wracking, but I can see what what the advantage would be. Um, Let's go back to some of the, the process, especially you mentioned the difference between uh, the approach around accreditation and uh, re-accreditation. But what about programs which are in teach out? Uh, what should the provider say about that? And what do you need to know? You, the assessment team, need to know about programs that are teach out? Because, of course, providers teach out programs all the time. Yes, yes, absolutely, David. Um... APAC's processes have slightly changed in the recent years, um, as you mentioned before, to really align with the 2019 standards. 
previously programs that are placed in teacher would continue to be conditionally accredited for up to 12 months before the provider was required to extend this accreditation period. This process is much more straightforward now and all programs in teacher, its expiry will align with the expiry date for all accredited programs unless otherwise specified by, by the provider. So what this means is when it's time for an education provider's reaccreditation review, should there still be students enrolled in a program that's been placed in TeachOut um, but will not graduate by the accreditation um, expiry date, this program must uh, be included in the submission for accreditation and the education provider must demonstrate how uh, the program continues to comply with the standards like any other program it offers. Deemed re-accredited, the program in TeachOut's expiry will extend by a period of five years. So once all students have graduated from the program, the education provider should then advise us to end its accreditation. Okay, that makes sense to me. Now, academics, and of course the professional staff who work alongside them and support them, are busy people. So how long does this assessment process take? How much time do they need to set aside? David, the bulk of the work is done um, in the lead up to the site visit. Submission for accreditation uh, provides the assessment team with the information, narrative and the evidence to demonstrate how the programs uh, comply with the standards. The submission is required at least three months ahead of the proposed site visit. Depending on the number of programs, I would imagine this part of the process would be the most lengthy and time-consuming part, given that the education provider is being asked to conduct a, a self-assessment on how each of its programs are meeting the standards. Uh, a provider should uh, make sure it allows itself adequate time for this self-review process, um, so to examine how the programs are meeting the standards, to identify where there might be shortfalls, and to consider how it may address these shortfalls. The site visit itself should provide opportunity for the assessment team to have discussions with staff, students, and other key stakeholders so they're able to present their feedback and views on how the programs are running. The purpose of the site visit is to verify uh, the information and the evidence presented in the submission through triangulation. The APAC team, we are here to support providers in each phase of the planning process. So again, if you have any questions about the process, please do not hesitate to reach out to our team at any stage. Okay, that's good to know. Now, you talked about speaking to academics and staff. So obviously you're going to talk to the relevant head of department, but do all staff members get their say? Yes, they do. Um, the assessment team speak with a range of ind individuals during the site visit process. Uh, typically, the visit will comprise of um, a series of interviews with selected individual and groups of staff members, committees that uh, contribute to the delivery and management of the programs, current students, recent graduates, as well as other stakeholders uh, such as external placement providers and both internal and external placement supervisors. Essentially, it's up to the education provider to prepare the visit schedule, including determining 
who is best to attend an interview session to verify the information detailed in the submission. So if someone is not tapped on the shoulder to attend a session, can they still put in a, a written submission? I'm thinking of circumstances, and hopefully these are very rare, where more junior members of academic staff, for instance, have concerns which they're nervous about raising in front of um, senior figures. Can they still share with APAC their thoughts on the quality of education? Yeah, sure. Of course they can. Um, APAC welcomes feedback from all stakeholders throughout the review process. Where possible, we um, encourage all stakeholders to provide that feedback at respective interview um, at their respective interview time. And if an interviewee is unable to attend a session or they're not tapped on the shoulder to attend a session, they're always welcome to send in written feedback to the APAC email address. We also offer this to stakeholders who um, attend an interview session, but may wish to provide further feedback outside of their um, interview time. Any feedback received this way is passed to the assessment team for consideration. In terms of getting feedback from students, I know academics can find it quite difficult to get student experience surveys back at the best of time. Not all students are motivated to fill in surveys and, and, and so on. They just want to get on with uh, their studies and, and move on. What's your experience like about engaging with students? Do you find that psychology students are particularly motivated or do you find it's fairly rare that to get useful and meaningful input uh, from students? Um, we tend to find that um, these sessions with students are, are well attended. Um, it's a stakeholder group that our assessment team looks forward to speaking uh, with. And as part of the process, um, we do ask education providers, or they should email the whole student cohort with an invitation to attend relevant um, interview session. This way, um, any student who wishes to attend and provide that feedback has the opportunity to do so. Um, and also, if, if they're unable to attend, of course, they can um, send in that written feedback. Now, it sounds like there are a lot of things to consider when preparing that kind of schedule. What's your advice on where an education provider should, should start? How should they structure this process? And do they get a checklist of what they need to do so that they can make sure that they've actually covered all their bases? Yes, it, it can be a lot of work and, and probably one of the most crucial parts of the site visit. Um, as I mentioned earlier, for providers, the first place to start is to attend the information session. During this session, we'll go through points that education providers need to consider when preparing the schedule. Uh, regardless of the visit um, running on-site or virtually. As part of that information session, we'll walk providers through each step of the process. We'll provide them with um, resources to assist with the planning. Um, and then we're frequently in touch by email and phone at key points of the process to provide um, that guidance. So when this is all over, you know, the uh, the build-up, the 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 pre-assessment and then the site visit, what happens after that? How quickly do education providers get feedback? Do they get copies of reports? Are those reports anonymized? What, what, what should I expect 
if I'm a head of school and I've, I've had a site visit? Uh, so following the site visit, the assessment team provides that initial feedback to the head of school and their line manager, um, and then the assessment team will work hard to prepare a draft report. Uh, the report then goes through a strenuous review process and is then tabled for consideration at the next accreditation assessment committee meeting. Following the committee meeting, uh, the draft report will then be sent to the provider for rejoinder. This step uh, gives the provider an opportunity to read over the report, correct any errors of fact and provide any additional information that was not available at the time of the review. Upon receipt of the, the rejoinder, the assessment team will then review the information provided and may make changes to the draft report. Uh, this includes proposed recommendations, conditions, comments and findings. Uh, then this draft report is tabled at the next committee meeting before it's forwarded to the APAC board for a final determination. The provider will uh, receive an official correspondence from APAC as well as a copy of the final report. Uh, the determination outcome will then be forwarded to the Psychology Board of Australia for its consideration as an approved program that falls within the pathway to providing qualification as a psychologist in Australia. Additionally, the accredited programs will be added to our APAC website and a copy of the web summary report will be made uh, publicly available. So just to be clear, which is the the threshold at which point a program is accredited or re-accredited? Is it the decision of the APAC board or is it the decision of CyBA? Yes, it's the APAC board uh, that makes the accreditation decision, whereas it's the CyBA that makes an approval um, decision. And it's just worth for emphasising or reminding people who are not particularly um, part of all this process, that we're talking about decisions being made by eminent, highly experienced, leading psychology academics and, and, and professionals. So APAC's excellent team, of uh, which is led, led by you, facilitates this process, but it's very much a process of people who are peers to the uh, education providers making the recommendations and the decisions. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely, David. Um, that's true. Earlier, you mentioned the term conditionally accredited. My understanding that is that this is another process that's changed over the last few years and programs are now accredited with or without conditions. C can you explain the difference uh, in terminology and the implications? Uh, yes, that's right, David. Um, rather than accrediting a program with conditions and granting it, conditional accreditation for a period of 12 months. Uh, since the introduction of the 2019 standards, accreditation decisions have been framed in a way to ensure that there is complete transparency between APAC and the education provider and all programs, whether they are accredited with or without conditions, are accredited for a maximum of five years. Education providers are required to meet conditions imposed on a program by a set time frame, dependent on the severity of the shortfall. For example, if the time frame put 
in place to address concerns over client and public safety will be relatively shorter than a deadline set uh, for to ensure um, adequate test library resources. And is the nature of the condition uh, publicly available? So on, on the website, when it says approved with conditions, are people able to work out what those conditions are? And uh, as you say, make an assessment of uh, how, uh, uh, how fundamental they are or, or not, as the case may be. As I mentioned earlier, a, a copy of the web summary report does outline the, the conditions on programs and um, will be made available um, on our website once uh, that accreditation decision has been made. And once the conditions are satisfactorily met, we update that information. I'm thinking now in terms of a student or a staff member who's watching the progress of a program, they may have a particular interest in that program, so they can know in reasonably real time how that program's accreditation is progressing and how the conditions are being met. Is that, is that true? Yeah, so we'll reflect that change in the um, search for accredited programs list where it will indicate that the programs um, are accredited with conditions or without conditions. And that will be updated as, as the conditions are, are met? That's correct. So once um, programs um, or conditions are met, then uh, the, it will reflect that decision. Okay, that's good to know. Now, during the accreditation period, is there anything else that an education provider should expect in terms of reporting requirements? There are, David. Um, there are a few ways that APAC monitors programs during the accreditation period. Um, so aside from programs that are accredited with conditions and are required to report during the specified time frame, uh, a provider may also have a monitoring requirement imposed on its programs. Monitoring requirements are different to conditions um, and while the program may meet the accreditation standards, ongoing monitoring may be required to ensure plans put in place are rolled out as intended. Uh, an example of this is uh, a provider may have an appropriate plan in place for benchmarking, however they need to report on the outcomes of these benchmarking activities. Additionally, providers are required to submit an annual report. Uh, these are submitted in April and should report on any changes to the programs, including its ability to continue to comply with the standards um, and, and any changes to the staffing profile. There are a few other reporting requirements as well, um, such as material changes, additional program titles and campuses, and reporting on changes due to the ongoing pandemic. We ask providers to keep us updated with any proposed changes to its programs, and we will be able to provide advice on the next steps. Okay, this has been a really interesting discussion. I've certainly learned a lot, and hopefully listeners will have too. So if you're summing up, what would you say are the key ingredients of making an assessment effective and collegial? So we all come out the other side feeling like we've, we've really achieved something. I would say the first and foremost um, important piece of documentation to provide is the submission for accreditation. The more detail and coverage provided in the submission, the better narrative it provides for the assessment team to assess the programs against the standards. Um, an education provider should be honest in its self 
review and explain how its programs are currently meeting the standards and outline any plans it has in place to address any shortfalls identified. A provider should submit adequate supporting information along with the submission and make a clear correlation between the submission and supporting evidence. Given the large amounts of uh, documentation and, and evidence that an assessment team needs to work through, if it is unclear and the assessment team is unable to locate the information it's seeking, uh, the provider might be asked for further information. With this in mind, an honest appraisal, clear documentation, and of course, communication with APAC at regular touch points is the best way to ensure an effective and collegial assessment process. Okay, thank you. And let's remind ourselves that we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot of technical issues. But at the end of the day, this is about people. This is about psychology students getting the best possible education so that in turn, if they choose to practice, that we in the community can get the best possible advice and help and guidance from the psychologists that we choose to visit. So this is about people, but the processes underpin the quality and therefore give everybody, uh, both staff, students and the community, confidence that psychology is being delivered in uh, the best possible way. Now, if people want to read more, there's stacks of information on our website and that's psychology council, or one word, .org.au, psychologycouncil.org.au. Thanks for your time, Nee. It's been a really fascinating discussion, and we look forward to everyone joining us for our second episode. And until then, goodbye. Thanks, David. Goodbye. <laughs>